This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In 2014, the state of Idaho launched an adventurous charter school innovation, which combines online learning and a statewide virtual school, together with brick and mortar schools located in specific parts of the state. The title of the nonprofit charter management network is GEM Innovation Schools, often known as GEM. Most recently, GEM began expanding its programming in such a way that it can work for families with working parents, an approach that they call learning societies. Now, Jason Bransford is the chief executive officer for GEM Innovation Schools, and I'm pleased to discuss with him on the Education Exchange the launch of this new venture, Learning Societies. So thank you, Jason, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Well, Jason, let's start at the beginning. I want to get all these little pieces put together here. So GEM begins as an online public charter school available statewide throughout the state of Idaho. Is that is that right? That's accurate. In 2004, the, the online charter school was opened. So what's happened? Uh, did the state get excited about this idea? Where did this idea come from in, in Idaho? Uh, the, the online school was the second online school in the state of Idaho. I believe in the early 2000s, the state of Idaho began allowing charter schools to operate. And you had a slow start there. And you had a few initial brick and mortar charter schools that launched. And then there was uh, one online school that launched. And we were the second online school. There was a superintendent of a small town up in northern Idaho. And there was a lot of homeschoolers in the school district that he was in. It was a rural school district. And there were a lot of people homeschooling. And at the time, he was providing the curriculum to those homeschooling families. And when this, the concept of an online school became available, he, he thought that the idea of actually not only giving them the curriculum, but actually enrolling them in a school and providing some level of accountability and further support for those families might be helpful. But rather than doing it just for the people in his little school district, he decided to go ahead and do it statewide. And so that's that was really the origins of our online school. So how many students are learning online through GEM today? Roughly 400 students in our fully online school today. So you have about 400 students in the online system, and that's concentrated in particular parts of Idaho? Is it mainly reaching students in rural areas, or, or what's the picture? Interestingly, there, there's a concentration around the Treasure Valley area, which is uh, Boise and Meridian, that part of the state. So there's a larger number there, but they are spread throughout the entire state. And I think the concentration really just is a matter of the, the population concentration in that part of the state. Um, but, but we do have students rural, urban, and suburban across the state. So what kinds of students actually enroll online? Are there a particular, do you, see, you have a particular type of student who, who seizes upon this as an opportunity that works for them? Can you characterize them in any particular way? Interestingly, the the, uh, the background has changed a little bit. The demographic hasn't changed much over the years, but the background has. In the early years, it was largely homeschooling students who wanted to enroll in an online school. In more recent years, particularly in the last decade, it's been more students coming from a brick and mortar environment where they, where they began their education. And for some reason, they end up enrolling in our online school. Often these are students who aren't being challenged in their local brick and mortar school, or often they have some other compelling reason that the local brick and mortar school just isn't working for them. We have a, a, a sizable population who they had some kind of health condition that affects their attendance or affects their ability to be in or stay at school all day long. And so uh, they tend to come from brick and mortar environments, but uh, but you know that wasn't always the case. They used to come from the homeschooling environment. 
So some people find that homes, people who are not necessarily homeschoolers, but people who get kids get sick and so, so they don't want to, can't really go to school very easily, or else they are afraid of bullying at school or violence at school or, or something like that. Is that, do you see some, some of that tendency? We do. We, we have a lot of people who come and say, you know, my, my child has always done well in school. My child, uh, you know, enjoyed school until this bullying incident happened or an ongoing bullying incident happened. Or I'm worried about uh, some of the trends or, or values or violence that are happening at the local school. And so often they'll withdraw their children from the local brick and mortar school and put them in our online school for one of those reasons. Well, is there any particular curriculum that you're offering at Jim that you uh, highlight that is attractive to parents? Is there, would you, how would you characterize your curriculum? Is that standard what you would get in almost any school, or is there something special about about what's available at Jim? We have a college prep curriculum, so the idea is that uh, we want to prepare students to be successful in their college studies. We recognize that not every student will actually go to college or even complete college, but we figure if we set students up well for uh, prepare them well for those experiences, they, they could largely be successful in nearly anything they pursue after, after high school as well. So we kind of take a three-tier approach to our academic learning model and, and our curriculum fits within these buckets. We have an academic focus. Our second pillar is the development of competencies. These are things like the ability to communicate effectively, both verbally and in writing, the ability to set and accomplish goals, the ability to manage your time effectively, things of that nature when I'm talking about competencies. And really the third bucket or the third pillar is our experiences. And so the idea is what we find is that students who have well-rounded experiences in their K through 12 years are set up for success much more than the students who have a very narrow set of experiences. So working a job while in high school, for example, or um, participating in honor society or student council or playing sports or any variety of experiences that really expose them to a wider set of skills and development really helps them to succeed post high school. So our curriculum is really built on those three pillars. And we, as we call it a college preparatory school, we recognize that not everybody's going here because they plan to go to college or will go to college. But the idea is if we set them up well in those three pillars, we believe that they can be highly successful in nearly any aspect of life after high school. Well, is, is this mainly a high school offering or, are, or do you have a lot of elementary school students? So little kids can find it very difficult to learn online. And so I'm just wondering, are you trying to reach young children or are you mainly trying to reach uh, students who are entering high school? Uh, each of our schools are kindergarten through 12th grade, so we have the range, and we think of those elementary years as, as building a strong foundation, particularly K through 3. We're making sure that students know how to read proficiently, making sure, and so, making sure that students know how to do math well, and so we look at those as really foundational years. Students spend less time online in those early elementary years, and they increase over the arc of their K through 12 learning experience. So by the time they get to sixth grade, for example, we typically have our sixth grade students take their first fully online course when they're in sixth grade. Now you can imagine they're going to brick and mortar courses with their teacher and they take one online course in sixth grade. They get into seventh grade, they typically take two online courses, you know, one per semester. Then in eighth grade, they continue to, to ramp that up. And that's part of the competency development. What we find is that when students have a hybrid of learning, when they're able to take brick and mortar courses and begin to ease into those online courses, it helps them actually develop a lot of the competencies that they wouldn't get only by taking brick and mortar courses. And so what this allows students to do is manage and make a lot of decisions about how they utilize their time. And so one of the concepts that we really emphasize in our organization is a concept called earned autonomy. And the idea is that if you're taking an online course, just as an example, and you're making an A or a B in that course at the first re reporting period, and you're, you've got no behavioral problems, and you're otherwise an exemplary student, 
why would we make you stay in a classroom with adult supervision and micromanage your every minute of every day? So those students earn the ability to leave a classroom and go study in one of our commons areas or go study in one of our collaboration rooms. And so the idea is that as students do well, they earn the autonomy or the flexibility to really dictate some of their own learning. And that's part of that's one of the ways that we help students develop some of those competencies that I talked about in the three pillars. Okay, so this is you're now getting into this mix between brick and mortar and online learning. And I understand you actually have some physical brick and mortar schools that you operate in different parts of the state. How many brick and mortar schools do you actually have? So today we have six brick and mortar schools. We have one online school and we have three learning societies. Okay, so let's let's start let's stick with the six the six brick and mortar schools so are they in the same part of the state or are they spread out throughout the state they are spread out throughout the state so um, for anybody who knows the geography of idaho i'm in pocatello and so that's in southeast idaho there's twin falls where we have a campus which is uh, south central idaho and the rest of our brick and mortar campuses are in the treasure valley which is in the boise meridian area of idaho well that's spreading yourself a long ways in lots of different directions. You've got some kids taking online, some kids taking brick and mortar and all different. This is an incredible management problem. How are you able to manage such a disparity of, uh, of offerings? Well, what we try to do is we try to keep as many things the same across the board. And so what we originally, one of our mantras originally, when we only had our brick and mortar schools and our online school, what we said was, you're going to be using the same curriculum the same technology, the same pacing guides, everything is going to be the same except you're accessing your learning from home as opposed to a brick and mortar school. So when we launched the learning societies, we said there's yet a third opportunity to really utilize the same curriculum, the same uh, technology uh, instructional model, and but, but really the only thing that changes is where you're learning from. And so what we've tried to do is keep it as uniform as possible. We had a model that was working really well in our online school, which is what we built our brick and mortar schools on. So the idea is we want to keep true to those things that we believe are, um, are are important to the success of students and really just change how students access or where students access that learning. Well, I know it's hard to sort of uh, put your finger on this because every child is different. But if you were to say on average, is this, is a child better off in your online school or in your brick and mortar school, all things being equal? Would you rather see them actually in the classroom, in the physical classroom or or don't you care? a really difficult question. Uh, and I think it's so circumstantial. They're really depending on the child's situation and the family situation. For example, in our online school, we require a full-time adult to be supervising the learning of the child. We find that otherwise, it's very unlikely that a child would be successful without a full-time adult in the home. And that even spans grade levels. Now, you might think that a high schooler would be much more successful as opposed to a younger student. And there are certainly circumstances where that could be the case. But the reality is, is that adult supervision is critical to success in the online school. But there's just a lot of families who can't have that, whether whether it's a two parent household where they both work or whether it's a single parent household that, that, that can't supervise the learning. Or maybe they just aren't interested in doing that for six or seven hours a day. The reality is, is an online school really isn't going to work well for that family and the brick and mortar school will be a much better often. So I think it's really circumstantial depending on the family dynamics. So if the family really wants to make a serious commitment to the education of their children and, and there's somebody in the family, whether it's the mother or the father, and they're willing to work with their child, then maybe that online experience can be perfectly wonderful. But if it's not, if that's not present, then maybe it's, it's really better off for them to be in one of those uh, brick and mortar schools. 
That's, that's well said. We, we did the online school for three years with my own daughter and it was very successful and it was great, but we didn't want to do it forever. And so we had her in our online school for three years. And uh, that wasn't the only thing that she did for her educational experience. And we have a lot of families who do that. We have some who stay for the entire K through 12 experience with their online school and they're very successful. We have others who come and go. We actually have a lot of transfer between our online school and our brick and mortar schools in both directions for a lot of different reasons, whether it's a job relocation where we don't have one of our brick and mortar schools and they decide to roll in our online school or the other direction where they've done the online school for several years. And for one reason or another, they decide to enroll in our brick and mortar schools. But uh, we think that's a good thing. They don't skip a beat on the curriculum. They don't skip a beat on what they're learning. They could leave our online school on a Friday and start our brick and mortar school on a Monday and be on the same lesson where they were going to pick up and their other school. And so we really think that transferability has a lot of value to students. How about teachers? Can teachers move easily from one modality to another? Or do you find some teachers are particularly good in the online setting and other teachers are good in the classroom? That's a great question. It's really, it's it's also highly variable on that individual teacher. We find some who are very successful in the classroom and they either have no desire or they have not yet developed some of the skills to be highly successful in an online learning environment. For example, in an online learning environment, uh, one of the mistakes that's often made is that uh, there's th that it's easy for adults to believe that, that a high degree of lecture or a high degree of direct instruction is actually the most powerful learning tool. And it's rare that that's actually the case. Uh, online learning really to, to do it well requires a high level of student engagement. And so there's got to be a lot of really engaging activities. The great thing is with the technology that we have today, there's really a lot of ways to engage students and hold 100% of students accountable for learning in an online environment. And in some ways may even be easier than in a brick and mortar environment where you're, you're trying to check the work of each of our students. Whereas online, uh, you know, I can see the screens of each of our students and I can see what their answers are. I can see where the misconceptions may exist. In a brick and mortar environment, it just looks a little different. We're checking for understanding in many of the same ways, but we might be using different tools. And so there are some teachers who are highly successful in the online environment and they've, they've transferred to our brick and mortar schools. And the same thing, there's, there's a little bit of a transfer of skill set that has to happen. And so um, some might be more successful than the other. And, and we have had several teachers who've transferred both directions. So when you go online, do, do, is all the instructions uh, synchronous so that the child and the teacher are all engaged with one another all the time? Or do you have some uh, uh, situations where the, there's just a body of curricular material that's being exposed to the student and then the teacher comes in to discuss it downstream? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a combination or a hybrid of the two. Um, so you've got some uh, synchronous learning that's happening. Typically, our teachers in the core subjects will have two live lessons per week for about an hour per lesson. So you can imagine that you're getting exposure to a live lesson in math uh, twice a week for about two hours. You can imagine the same thing in science, social studies, English. Um, but but what, we've, what we then do is the re remainder of the learning for those courses are actually done asynchronously. So students are working independently or even offline at times in the rest of their learning. And so we find that the hybrid of those two has actually worked really well for our students online. Well, let's turn to learning societies because that's your new venture. And I, I can see that it's got a lot of potential. And I can see a lot of pitfalls. So uh, what, what's the, uh, what is this concept of learning societies? You're taking into account the fact that some parents are working and they really aren't available to be at home to work with their child. So how does this institution function? Yeah, you're exactly right. There was a gap between what we were doing several years ago, and, and we recognized it. We wanted to solve it for years. So, so we have our online school where you have to have a full-time adult in the home, and that, that is a limiting factor for a lot of folks who might want to do that school. And then we have our brick-and-mortar schools, which tend to be located in our larger cities in the state of Idaho, 
And you've got a whole swath of families who, who want a gym prep education, and they've reached out for, for years asking for this, but really we didn't have a solution for them. If they didn't have a full-time parent in the home or adult in the home, we really didn't have a lot that we could offer to them. And so uh, for years, legislators, families, and, and even sometimes students, particularly high school students, would reach out and say, hey, I want to do this, but I don't have an adult in the home. I don't live near one of your brick-and-mortar schools. Is there anything you can do for me? And the answer had to be no for years. Then what we decided, um, about three years ago, we were having some conversations. The pandemic had kind of exposed what, what was happening around the country with micro schools, with learning pods, and things of that nature around the country. And we, and, and we started to look at those. And we found a, a high degree of variability across the country about how those were structured, what the, what the learning outcomes were, what their purpose was. And as we looked at that, we said, so we've got two different learning modalities in our organization already. We've got the online school, we've got brick and mortar schools. Is there a third learning modality that may meet, that, that we could utilize or learn some lessons from these micro schools or learning pods that are happening around the country that could meet the needs of some of our rural communities where they're not gonna ever be big enough to have a full-size gem prep school? where there's families who want to do this, but they don't have a full-time adult in the home. And this was out of this was born the concept of learning societies. And so we said initially out of the gate, what we want to do is we want to keep the same mission, the same focus, the same curriculum, the same instructional strategies. But can we do this in a small community of maybe 30 to 40 students who would come to a location, have the opportunity to learn in that location? Now they're going to have some flexibility there but but that's the that's the premise of learning society this is how we do this in the smaller communities and uh th that's where they were born from well do you have all ages uh, attending to this coming to the same location will this be a church or will this be a a community center or something like that is that is that the kind of location that you select for the for the learning society yeah we can be highly variable based on on what the what the community has available and and so, for example, in one of our learning societies, we're meeting in some classrooms of a church building. In another learning society last year, we met in the basement of a BFW hall. This year, um, we, we are meeting our third location launched in what's basically an old strip mall, and we renovated one of the spaces. And so we need a little bit of space, and there's certain criteria that we have to meet within that space, restrooms, ADA accessibility, things of that nature. But really, it you know, there's a wide variety of facilities that can work well. For, for meeting the needs of our learning society students. So how many students will it be in any one of these learning societies? Will it be like uh, 25 or 50 or how many? Uh, do you have an upper limit? Yeah, our target enrollment is 30 to 40 students. We feel like much bigger than 40 begins to create some, uh, some management issues. We want these to really be small and personalized enough with our staffing model that we can provide a, a really robust level of support to these students. So going much above 40 creates problems that way. And then going much below 30 creates problems of making sure that enough revenue is generated. These are public school students enrolled in Gem Prep online. And so we make sure, make sure that we have enough revenue to really support and sustain the, the learning societies. And how do you staff them? Is it with one teacher or do you have two, three adults in each learning society? Yeah, we've got a formula that we run based on the enrollment of our learning societies. And so based on how many students are enrolled, we, we determine staffing. So typically, if you were to have 40 students enrolled in a learning society, you'd have one learning society leader. These are typically certified teachers. Ideally, they've, they've experienced with gem prep. Um, they've already taught for us in the past, but, but this is the learning society leader. And then you have one to two partner teachers. These are paraprofessionals who are supporting the learning of the students in that community. Well, I've been reading an essay about some of the challenges you faced in the opening year. So what were some of the issues that you had to grapple with? Because the first day, the first year on anything, there's it never, things 
surprise you, right? It's like the contact with the enemy changes the nature of the war. Uh, so that's probably happens here too. So what were some of the challenges you ran into? So we ran into several challenges. I think uh, the first thing that we did, while, while community members from these communities had come to us and actually asked us to launch these learning societies, and we were happy to do it, we didn't fully appreciate some of the staffing dynamics that we needed to have to make these highly successful. And so, for example, in one of our learning societies, we had a, a, an experienced gym prep teacher running that learning society. And the others, we in the other, we actually hired a parent to run this. And, and the original idea was that in our online school, our parents have been successful working with their children in our online school, and the students have done quite well. And so we thought that in essence, that this person would be kind of like a proxy parent. They've done well with their own children. Now they can take on the instruction and support of other people's children. Turns out that was a very flawed way of thinking. And so what we did was we actually uh, pivoted on that mid-school year and we were able to take a, an existing teacher from one of our other schools and send her uh, as, as the parent didn't want anything to do with this anymore. She got about two months in and said, this is more than I'm capable of handling. I don't wanna do this. We provided a lot of support, but the reality was it, it was actually the best thing that could have happened. So we brought in a, a teacher from another one of our gem prep schools and had her run that. And that began to go much better when we had somebody who had classroom experience, running a set of students, supporting students at different capability levels, and really um, helping and supporting students that way. So one of the things that we learned was that it's so critical to have a strong leader as that learning society leader, somebody who's an experienced teacher, ideally a gem prep experienced teacher. So that was the first lesson that we learned. I think the second lesson that we learned was that uh, parents, originally we had a five hour school day because the idea was that you're still enrolled in gym prep online. Anything you don't get done in that five hours, you would take it home and, and you and your family would work on at home. And uh, what we found was that students were bringing home quite a bit of homework in those first several months. And parents asked, is there any way you can extend the school day a little bit longer, allow my students to stay there and get all their homework or most of their homework done during the school day so that they don't have to bring that home. So that when we get home, we have quality time that we can spend together as a family doing recreational things or, or just doing something else. But really spending time doing homework isn't the quality family time that we're looking for. So can you extend the school day? So we did that as well. I think another thing that we learned is we didn't do a, a really great job of defining the roles and responsibilities between the site leaders on the ground in these learning societies and the gem prep online teachers. So remember, these are students who are enrolled in gem prep online. So they're taking courses through gem prep online, but they're doing their learning from a learning society location. And we didn't do a great job because originally we said that these learning society leaders would, would in essence be proxy parents. So they would have the roles and responsibilities of a parent. What we found is that's actually not what our students and our uh, staff and families wanted. What they actually wanted was several hours of offline learning per day, which wasn't the original design of this. What they wanted was uh, somebody on the ground who was actually teaching much of the content or at least doing skills practice with students with much of the content. And so we were able to make some pivots on that as well. So those are some of the first year lessons learned. We're going into year two, so we think there'll be a new set of lessons learned uh, from this year. But uh, that's, that's kind of our big takeaways from year one. So what's your enrollment projected for, for the coming year? Is it, when do the classes begin? Right after Labor Day? Or uh, it, what's your opening day? Classes started last week, actually. They started a, a week ago. And uh, so we just started year two of our learning societies. And uh, we're off to a really good start. Interestingly, this year, based on the lessons that I just shared, we were able to hire three experienced gem prep teachers to run our locations. One was a returner from last year and the two others uh, our experienced gem prep teachers who were commuting a long distance to get to one of our brick and mortar schools who are now able to work in their community and save themselves, uh, you know, hour and a half to two hours of commute time every day. Well, that's very good. Now, what's the mix of students? Do you have everybody in this uh, learning society from uh, 
uh, second grade to uh, junior in high school? Yeah, last year during the pilot year, we just had first through fifth grade students, so we could learn a lot of lessons and, and really scale up from there. This year, we're allowing K through 12 to enroll in our learning societies. And uh, so, so we've got a mix of all of them. Now, they max out at 40 students. We tend to have a few more elementary students than we do middle school and high school students. We do have some middle school and high school students, but it tends to be concentrated a little bit lower elementary grade levels right now. So did you say you have 40 altogether in your three locations or 40 in each of them? I have 40 in each location and 20 in one of the locations. So I have a total of roughly 100 students in learning societies today. And how does that compare with a year ago? Is this an expansion? Yeah, a year ago we had 27 students. So we started small and we had 22 or we had 20 students in one location and we had seven students in another location. So what's your projection? What do you see as your total enrollment in the learning society, say maybe in five years or eight years' time? I think we'd like to have half a dozen learning societies around the state with each having 40 students in them. So we're looking at a little over 200 students from around the state that we would have. And, and then uh, all together, now you've got three modalities going. I'm, I'm really excited about this approach because it's such a challenge to think of you three different modalities that all being taught the same content and the same kind of a structure, but with these important variations. So how many students all together do you be projecting will be participating in gym prep? Today, we have a little over 3,200 students in gym prep schools total. Uh, five years from now, we anticipate having about 6,000 students across the state. So how about the state of Idaho? Are they happy with what's going on here? Are they raising a critical eyebrow? Do you have any regulatory issues and challenges that you're having to deal with? No. The um, Interestingly, this, this is a new frontier for the state of Idaho. While there are certainly learning pods that are happening around the state, and there are certainly private micro schools that are happening around the state, in the public sector, this uh, I'm not aware of any other efforts quite like this in the state of Idaho. And so it's really quite nebulous, meaning that there's not a lot of uh, parameters for this. And in a way, that's a good thing, because I think we needed to get in there and have a couple of years to really learn and, and provide high quality instruction and, and learn some lessons quickly. Um, on the other side of this, I could see future efforts in our state to do this. And again, when public revenues involved, we want to make sure that there's accountability with that. And you know, our students are doing well. And, and learning. And so we think it's important that that this is an opportunity that continue, that, that can continue. And we think it's important that in future years that there will be uh, opportunities to put some parameters around this, because I think others will want to do something like this. And it's important that their students are learning and being held accountable for learning. Well, I know this is still a new venture, but you need some proof points. What What's the evidence that you have that it's really working? Do you have any any uh, details or facts that sort of uh, highlight how successful you've been? Yes, in our first year, one of the challenges that, that we faced was that our students came in at really low proficiency levels. So on our kindergarten through third grade reading assessment, this is a statewide uh, mandate assessment, what we found is only 18% of our students in the fall of last school year were reading proficiently, according to that assessment. By the end of the school year, 58% were reading proficiently. And so that's tremendous growth for just one school year during the pilot year with these with this small number of students. And so we felt really confident that we had some early indications that a high degree of learning was happening. And it was it was having a dramatic impact on the lives of our students and their ability to read effectively. 
This year we're looking at, because last year we only had kindergarten, we only had first through fifth grade last school year. This year, because we have kindergarten through 12th grade, we're really looking at what those data points will bear out for our middle school and high school students, in addition to those, those early reading indicators we talked about. Well, listen, this has been a fascinating account of a, an experiment that is really uh, on the cutting edge. So thank you very much, Jason, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with Jason Bransford, the CEO of Jim, a nonprofit charter school network in Idaho that is providing education through a combination of online brick and mortar and learning society approaches. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.